things are going to be uncomfortable in life and you're going to have uncomfortable runs, uncomfortable races, uncomfortable conversations with family and friends and, you know, standing up to your boss if you feel like you deserve a raise, all things like that. I think it's just giving you a little more courage and a little more, I guess, um, pep in your step to really stand up for what you believe in and to push through those hard days and know that you're going to see light at the end of the tunnel. That's Stephanie Bruce, and this is episode 52 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. It's your host, Mario Fraioli, and welcome back to my podcast. Every week, I sit down with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running to hear their stories and bring you bits of insight and inspiration that you just won't find anywhere else. This week, we've got Stephanie Bruce. She's a professional runner for Hoka, Northern Arizona Elite. She's a 229 marathoner, mom of two boys, co-owner of Picky Bars, and oh yeah, she's the reigning national 10K champion on the roads. I've been fortunate enough to get to know Steph over the last several years, and we actually ran a few miles together early on at last December's Calendar National Marathon, where we both set personal bests. And we got into all kinds of stuff during this conversation, from what she's got going on from a training and racing standpoint right now, to why she thinks it's important to get out of your comfort zone in racing, and why it's a good thing for the sport when more professional runners do it, the changes that she's made to her training in the past several years, and how that's contributed to her recent success, who she looks up to in the sport, where she gets her grittiness from, how you can cultivate grittiness in your own life and a whole lot more. I think that's enough of an intro. This is a good one, folks. So let's just dive right in with Stephanie Bruce. All right, Stephanie Bruce, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks for having me, Mario. It's been a while since we've caught up. How are things going? It's going well. Yeah, I think the last time we caught up was maybe like five minutes during the CIM marathon. <laughs> yeah, it was about mile two or three. I was I was drafting off of you, Emma Bates, and I can't remember who else was in that front pack at the time, but you guys did a great job of setting a nice even pace early on, so I thank you for that. Yeah, no, I would have liked to go with you because I knew that you're a very good pacer from past experience with you, but um, I didn't really have uh, much more than the 229 in me that day. Well, to throw it back at you, part of my strategy was to stay with the women's lead pack early on because in general, and I say this as a coach of many women, you guys are just a lot smarter than us guys are. Like, Or you girls, I should say, are a lot smarter than us guys are because we are more apt to go out and do something silly, especially in the first 5K of a race. And I knew that if I could tuck into that women's lead pack, I would be steadier than I would be aggressive. And that's what I needed to run my own PR that day. So thank you <laughs> in retrospect for, uh, for helping me to run a personal best at CIM. And I'm glad that you were able to as well. Of course. You're so welcome. I really can't take credit. You did the training, but I appreciate the sentiment. Well, we all we all put in our respective work. And fortunately, this time it worked out well for both of us. So that's great. Um, here we are. We're talking on a Friday afternoon. This podcast probably won't come out for a couple weeks. But earlier this week on Monday, you ran the Pacific, Pacific Pursuit 10K at UCSD, um, finished second to your teammate, Kellen Taylor. You guys missed the world standard of 3150, but still ran in the, in the low 32s. Take me through that race and what the objective was going into it and how you guys decided to put that on the early season schedule. Sure. So, you know, a few months ago when we were kind of planning 2018 out, 
uh, excuse me, 2019, I'm a year behind. Um, uh, Richie Hansen from Roots Running, he had put a couple feelers out to some coaches and agents and said, hey, I know a lot of people might be trying to get a world mark in the 10K. Is there any other option besides you know, Peyton Jordan or maybe the first Stanford? And he said, what if we tried to capitalize on people's like late, late winter fitness? And when he posed it to Coach Ben and to our agent Josh, you know, we thought, well, we have U.S. Cross in early February, and then hopefully, you know, a couple of us make the world team for cross. Somewhere in between that, could a 10K on the track fit in? And we thought this would be a great idea. And so he kind of scoped out some venues. And of course, in the dead of winter, San Diego, California looked to be a great idea. Um, ironically, what ended up happening is in the two weeks leading up to the race, uh, everyone was watching the weather and there was like a huge rainstorm that blew in the week before the race. And, you know, they made some last minute decisions. I think this was made about 48 hours before the race was scheduled to run on Sunday evening as, you know, a night race under the lights at UCSD. But the forecast was calling for like 19 to 20 mile per hour winds and rain. And we just thought, I mean, it'd be pretty stupid to try to go after a fast time in those conditions. So after consulting with a lot of the athletes and agents, they ended up moving the race to Monday morning, which when we first heard, you know, we were definitely on board with because we knew we'd have, we'd be running against a lot with mother nature Sunday night, but I will be honest, it was a little unusual and strange to run a track 10 K in the morning. You know, I don't know why that is. We run road races 7 AM. I was thinking about peach tree last summer and you're ready to run fast. Adrenaline is up, heart is pumping, but there was just definitely a different, different atmosphere for a morning track race. And so I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but, um, yeah, we gave it our best go and we just came up short of trying to run the standard of 3150. But I think what it showed to us that one, no one is ever that fit for a track 10K in February. Um, but there was no harm in trying because, you know, I got a great race effort, a great workout effort out of it. And now that I ran that one already, it kind of gives me um, a little more hope and a little more confidence that whatever I try to run this spring, I'll know, okay, we already ran 32.15. You know, now you just got to notch it down a little bit. Yeah. And not that long ago for you to run 32.15 on the track was, you know, was huge. Like maybe a year ago, that would have been huge to open your season with 32.15. And you can walk away from this one feeling like content, but maybe a little bit disappointed being like, well, now this is my starting point. And I think that's an exciting place to be with, you know, full track season still ahead of you. Yeah, I think a bigger part of it, too, is and, you know, I don't want to speak for all professional runners, but sometimes people just don't want to race early because you put yourself out there and it makes you a little vulnerable when you're not that fit. But there's something about, I guess, our team and me personally I don't really have an ego about it. I don't care if I'm not that fit. The result is what it's going to be because deep down, like I know my fitness level and I know there's still a lot more in me that it's not, let's say, embarrassing to go not run close to what I wanted to run. Um, but I definitely think that's part of our sport that people only want to come out when they're in their tip top form. Um, whereas I'm kind of like, whatever, let's just that was kind of the motto of this early winter. I just ran some races that, yeah, I wasn't quite ready for, but I just kind of wanted to get
get after it and see where I was. And for me, it only, I think, sets up well for the future. And that's one of the things that I love about you as an athlete. In the last three months, you've raced a marathon. If we go back four months, you've raced two marathons, cross country, and now a track race. And there are very few, if any, people out there that I can think of off the top of my head who, as you said, would be willing to even even do such a thing. And you show that you can be successful in all three of those things too. Like you don't necessarily have to specialize. So where I'd like to go with that is in general, how much better of a job do you think athletes can do of doing exactly what it is that you did of stepping out of maybe their specialty from time to time or getting out of their racing comfort zone, so to speak, and and branching out a bit, you know, not only to maybe advance their, their own fitness or get a good competitive result, but just to help make the sport more exciting. I, yeah, I think the comfort zone is definitely the the key here because, yes, I am not naive to think I ran 15.44 in Boston at the indoor games. 15.44 isn't a great time. Like, it's not a world-class time. So I'm not thinking all of a sudden I'm this 5K runner. But I also look at who was in the field and how close I was to the women. And that race ended up being a very strange tactical race where I ended up leading. <laughs> and then now I'm kind of looking at all those women and they've just been running like super fast miles and 3Ks. And I'm like, what were you guys doing? Um, but for me, I just kind of feel like um, if you if you take out the, oh, I'm not a X runner, I only do well in this event, um, then that kind of opens yourself up to, I don't know, not giving a crap a little bit about what race you're going to run and just realize if you're fit, you're fit. And maybe that comes with being part of NAC Elite and Coach Ben's training. I mean, he just prepares us, in my opinion, for all race distances all year round. So when I'm ready to run a marathon, I also think I could run a fast 10K. Um, And so I pull a lot of confidence from the training that we do that I'm kind of ready for any race distance, like at any time of the year. And that's part of what I've tried to do. And yeah, I think getting out of your comfort zone can show other people, hey, you could probably do it too. Um, Yeah. You've been at this for a while. You're 35 years old now. You just set a marathon PR. You said you set an indoor PR on the track for the 5K. You made another world cross-country team. How are you thinking about your career right now at 35 years of age? Honestly, it's just really exciting. Like it's, I wake up every day and I am so psyched to be doing what I'm doing. And I'm trying to raise two little boys with my husband, Ben. And I'm just like, this is so much fun. Like, I don't think of my age as like a limiting factor. And I just think of myself as, I don't know, like that I could just do whatever I want in in a sense. And it sounds so weird, but it's like such a freeing feeling that there's no pressure except what I put on myself. And each time I like take on a new challenge or, um, and stepping up to a new race distance or whatever it is, I just feel like I haven't quite hit my potential. And so all the races I'm looking at, I'm like, what am I capable of running? And it's, yeah, it's just really exciting to feel like I'm at the cusp of the the best part of my career. And I don't really see an, an end goal or anything, but it just makes it that I'm very hungry to keep getting the most out of myself every day and being surrounded by the group that I'm in. Looking back at the last five years, was there ever a point when you didn't feel that way, when you thought maybe your fastest days were behind you or you should move on from the sport? Or did you always have that 
hope that your best days or at least better days were ahead of you? I think there were probably a couple moments that I, I doubted whether I was going to come back. And those were probably right when both of my sons were born. You know, my first son, Riley, when he was born, I I thought I was going to make it back for the 2016 marathon trials because he would have been um, like uh, 16 or 17 months old. But then I ended up getting pregnant with our second son, Hudson, when Riley was only six months old. So that definitely took the marathon trials out for 2016. But then when I kind of focused my, um, the next part of my season on trying to get back for the track trials and I end up running what we just talked about that 32 14 in 2016, I said, okay, maybe, maybe like I can come back and do this. Um, but then I had a pretty rough next year and a half of a couple injuries here and there, a couple setbacks with like energy levels. And I was doing all the workouts that coach Ben was prescribing, but it was never translating to the races. And so I'm like, maybe, maybe I'm doing this for nothing, but there's always just been something really deep inside of me that either doesn't let me give up or it's the supreme belief in myself that it will turn around. And as long as I never like get too far down the let's stop and, and not do this anymore, um, something always clicks and shifts. And so over the last year, things really turned around for me and it, it all made sense. Like why I guess I was supposed to have two kids in the middle of my career and why I shouldn't have given up at any point along the way. And how much of a role did, let's call them the two, the two Bens play, your husband, Ben Bruce, and your coach, Ben Rosario, in you know, encouraging you to, to stick with it and you know, to, to let you know that there were still better and faster days ahead? Yeah, both Bens have been extremely pivotal. You know, Starting with Coach Ben, I think that he's in a unique situation where he was coaching me six to seven weeks postpartum. But when I say coaching, I mean, he's like, okay, how was your five minute run yesterday? You know, he was starting at absolute square one, like before even someone who's coming back from an injury, because he was realizing all the problems I was having postpartum. And I was able to tell him all the whatever embarrassing details that were occurring and happening to me. Um, yeah. And he took me from running a 20 mile week to a 35 mile week to a 42 mile week and really just like brought me along really slowly. And I think he was able to look at the big picture, you know, and never rush me and, and build me to the point where now I'm running hundred mile weeks, you know, three years postpartum. So that was huge for him. And then my Ben, I mean, there's no way I would be where I'm at without him because he just balances our family from him having his own running career. He's now the assistant coach of our group. He cooks all our meals. He shovels the snow. You know, we have such this balance in our family that um, I truly couldn't do it by myself. And he allows me to now have the second half of my career where I'm now the one traveling and leaving the kids and having all this mom guilt. And he just tells me, just keep doing it. You're making it worth it every time you leave. So how important is it for any runner, whether they're at your level as a professional who makes a living at this or competitive age grouper who's chasing a PR or just someone who's a big part of their lifestyle, having that support network in place as you're pursuing whatever it is that you want to do? 
I mean, it's huge because you can have this belief in yourself. And I think that's the first thing that you have to have in order to like really pursue goals, especially when you have obstacles and challenges that you face. But if you have someone else that not only just believes in you, but believes in the path that you're on and they can help facilitate things. I mean, I can't imagine how some people who have a job where they're working, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week and they get up at 4 a.m. And most of the people we coach and they train before they go to work and then they come home in the, in the evening and they train before they go to bed. Um, you know, those people I give way more credit to than us. <laughs> they're the, they're the warriors really out there. And if they don't have someone else that kind of understands what they're trying to do, I imagine it's, it's a huge challenge. So, Hopefully, if, if you don't have anyone that is like that in your life, you at least keep that hope alive to yourself and really tell yourself that you, you owe it to yourself to kind of see how good you want to be and how hard you can train for this short period of your life. How did becoming a parent change your perspective on your career as a professional runner? <sighs> well, I you know, I know that it, so to speak, is a semi-selfish career, but what I've tried to at least figure out and balance after becoming a mom was, okay, if it is selfish, um, am I at least teaching people and am I teaching my kids something from that selfishness? And hopefully, you know, my kids might not see it now, but I'm teaching them that it's really important to have something that you love so much that you want to get up every day out of bed to go out and pursue. And that's what running is for me. And so if my boys see me leaving on the weekends or they have babysitters coming over, I mean, they're such troopers. They totally understand it now. Like when I have jeans and just regular shoes on, they're like, mommy, not going running. You know, like they don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) They don't understand. I'm like, guys, I don't run all the time, but, um, yeah, you know, like I hope that they see as they get older, okay, our mom was our mom and that was her primary job and role. But she also was this woman who was trying to pursue something that was so important and she was so passionate about. And I hope they find something like that in their lives. Taking that a step further, do you feel like in just the last few months, certainly going back a year or so, that you've taken on that type of mom role with Nazalie? As the Um, team has grown and added some younger women who are just getting into the professional side of the sport and have no idea how to navigate the complicated landscape that is professional running. Yeah, I think so. You know, with me being as old as I am, I have seen it all. And I've, I've seen many different paths that different runners have gone down. And, you know, not, not just with my team, but every time like I meet a new runner on the circuit, I just want to like take them and say, okay, you've run this, this is what you should do for the next seven or or 10 years of your career, because I've just seen what what's worked and what hasn't worked. And I want everyone I just always want everyone to get the most out of themselves as a runner. So if I think, oh, this 10K runner who keeps running on the track, they really should run half marathons and marathons. I want them to go do that. So, you know, with my teammates, I was lucky enough that we got such a talented crop of women come in. I mean, they're jumping right in with workouts and they're hanging with Kellen, Alfie, and I. So these ladies are really strong and have such a bright future. Um, 
but yeah, I definitely, I think when they have days where they're either questioning, oh man, I haven't really translated the races of the results that they had in college quite to professional running yet. I try to tell them that it takes time, you know, and it took me 10 years to win a national title for a multitude of reasons. So hopefully that they see it's not an overnight thing in pro running. And usually the longer you're in it, um, the better you're going to do. How has pro running changed over the last 10 to 12 years since you got into the sport after college? One, everyone's better. <laughs> I mean, I coming starting from college, it's just crazy to see like the depth that, especially on the women's side and the men's, it's just kids are running insane times now. Like running under 33 minutes in the 10K was unheard of, you know, when I graduated in 2007. And now it's like an everyday occurrence for a lot of conferences and regionals and nationals. So that's been really exciting because I think that means the U.S. is now trying to transcend themselves back into, you know, a force in the world. And we want to get to the point where we're going to the Olympics and we're going to the world championships, trying to medal um, and trying to really mix it up with the rest of the world. So that is very exciting. And then the biggest thing I've also seen is the the influx of group training. And I think sponsors are starting to see that that's also the most lucrative um, way to go. And when you want to sponsor a kid out of college, sometimes it's a little risky because you don't know what kind of coach they're going to have, like what's their trajectory. Whereas if you have a group setting that, that company can, that shoe company can work with the coach, figure out what's going to be their racing plans. You know, what's their Olympic cycle, big four-year plan. And I also think the group training is just elevating everyone because you have someone in a group go run this and they're like, well, I train with that person so I can go run this. You know, we had three guys run 212 to 213 in the marathon simply because, well, I trained side by side with him. Um, and so I believe I can run what, Scott Smith and Scott Bubble did. So I think that's been a huge change since since I've been running in the last 10 years. How big has that been for you? Because prior to NAS Elite, you were part of the McMillan Elite squad. And back in 2011, you're in your personal best of 229 and change in the marathon while you were with that group. And then you joined you know, NAS Elite once McMillan Elite kind of dissolved and have been part of Ben's squad now for the last few years and your career has continued to progress as you've gotten well into your 30s now. So how how important has that group environment and maybe the specifics of the people in that environment been to your continued development as an athlete? Well, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say I think Coach Ben's training has been really pivotal in where my career has taken off in the last couple of years. You know, sometimes I feel like athletes don't find out what type of athlete there are until later in their career. And it could be simply they weren't doing the right training. And so I feel like uh, the training I found under Coach Ben absolutely works for me and it has gotten me so strong and so fast. And then when you had things like being Kellen Taylor's training partner, and then she goes and gets fourth at the Olympic trials and sixth at the marathon trials, she runs 31:40 in the 10 K. And then last year, 224 in the marathon. And I'm like, well, 
I'm stride for stride with her in a lot of workouts. So then it tells me, hey, Stephanie, like that's possible for you. And then Alphine joins our group and she wins every national, she wins every national title under the sun, um, you know, and I can hang with her on lots of things. And then last year at Petrie, I'm able to beat her. So we just have this mentality in our group that we're here to make the most out of training with each other and help push each other, you know, and then obviously when it comes to race, we're all competing against one another, but we just have that unique atmosphere where you couldn't do it alone. Like they, they push us and we push one another to really like get the most out of us on a daily basis. Hey, let's take a quick break so I can thank our sponsor for this episode. It is rise run retreat. Rise Run Retreat is a four-day women's running retreat. It takes place from May 16th to the 19th in Vermont, and it was founded on the idea that when women come together through running, they inspire and strengthen one another. Nestled in the Green Mountains, the picturesque village of Woodstock serves as the backdrop to all of Rise Run Retreat's activities. You'll explore country lanes, run through gentle wooded trails, and listen to inspiring guest speakers and participate in numerous workshops. Joining host Sarah Canny at Rise Run Retreat this spring is Sally McRae. She's a professional ultra runner, coach, and all-around inspiration. Quick side note, I happen to coach Sally, and let me tell you, she's got amazing energy, an incredible story, and you will just love spending some time hanging out with her for four days in Vermont. In addition, guests will hear from Kristen Shevshunas. She's a confidence coach to female athletes at the collegiate, professional, and Olympic level. You'll also have the chance to work with injury prevention specialist and running coach Kim Nato. Guests will take part in group runs, restorative yoga and cross training sessions, and you'll also have the chance to sit by the fire pit, soak in the jacuzzi, or just find a quiet spot to relax. Sounds pretty amazing to me. Limited to just 16 women. Sorry, guys. The small-scale setting makes for a unique and impactful experience. Registration for the retreat, that is May 16th to 19th, includes all of your lodging, wholesome meals provided by the local farmer's market, and an amazing swag bag. With only seven spots still available, registration is sure to fill up quickly before the April 7th deadline. So head over to riserunretreat.com and use the code TMSPOD. That's all caps and save 100 bucks off your registration fee. My thanks to Rise Run Retreat for supporting the podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Going back to what you said about Coach Ben and the training that he has prescribed for you, working so well for you in the time that you've been together, what were some of those specific changes that he made from what you were doing before that you feel like you've responded really well to? So, you know, a lot of his training obviously is very strength based, but the one thing that people always ask me about, and I think why we do well in the marathon and year round, we feel like we're fit is because we have a lot of long workouts with very short rest. And so that becomes very race specific. So, you know, I'm doing 10 times a mile down in Camp Verde, which is at 3,300 feet. And I think last year we did 10 times a mile at 522 with one minute rest. And so that becomes very specific when you're thinking about a half marathon. Um, and then I think, okay, like I can run that when I'm on fresh legs, 13.1 miles in a row. It makes me feel confident. I can go out and run 70 minutes for the half. Um, you know, up, up in Flagstaff at 7,000 feet, we do a lot of things called critical velocity, which is essentially half marathon pace on your legs, but it ends up translating to 10K effort. So we'll do like eight times a thousand with one minute rest at 320s. 
up at 7,000 feet. So that's 520 pace, um, you know, but that ends up being physiologically on your body, that 10K effort. So I think a lot of those things. And then when we do marathon training, it's just long workouts and long sustained running. And so when we get to the end of races, even if we're not having the day, we can always hang on. Like we don't feel like we ever really blow up or die in a race. And I think that's been, you know, a huge testament to the the training that we put in. You mentioned earlier in the conversation how for a short period of time, you know, you were dealing with some issues where you just weren't bouncing back quite as quickly and recovering as well. And obviously you're training at, you know, a very high level. What changes have you had to make in the last couple of years, whether it's been to your nutrition or, or otherwise to help you better absorb the training that you were doing and recover from it? So I had a couple of unique issues. Um, one, I have celiac disease, which is a autoimmune disease where I'm intolerant of gluten. And then because of that, that damaged a lot of my intestines and my stomach. And it made me allergic to some other big allergens, which were dairy, soy, egg, and then a couple other random things like xanthan gum. Um, but essentially what that did is that also created just a not very a stable environment in my gut. And what we realized was one, your gut is a muscle and two, the things that go on in your gut is exactly where you recover. Like when you eat certain foods, when you're trying to absorb nutrients, that all happens in the gut. And so when my gut is still going through all this damage and it just feels uh, stressed out or flared up, it's not going to allow me to absorb the things that I'm trying to have it absorb. So we were realizing I was having some um, deficiencies in B12 and folate and vitamin D, where no matter how much I was supplementing, I wasn't, I couldn't get it from food because my allergies and then my gut was just not absorbing it. So I basically had blood levels that were indicative of anemia, which is a little different than you see, you think traditional anemia is just your iron is low, but the folate and B12, um, those are huge pathways that are like a predecessor for anemia. And so what would happen is I would have a couple weeks of great training and then all of a sudden I would start to feel like I was tanking. And ironically, it happened before like four or five big races um, in 2017 and 2018. And I wouldn't know it until right before the race is when I started to feel bad. So now we've been able to monitor my blood levels a little more frequently and try to address those issues by healing my gut a little more naturally. How often are you getting blood work done? I usually get it anywhere from eight to 10 weeks, every eight to 10 weeks. And how important is it for athletes in general, not just professionals, to monitor that kind of stuff? Because most of us, unless we go to the doctor and they order up labs, we never get it looked at. But whenever you hear of an athlete who either isn't recovering well, their energy levels are super low, then you take a look at their blood work and nine out of 10 times something is off and it sometimes can just be an easy fix like with your diet or, you know, eliminating something that's been causing trouble. Like how, how important is it to be an advocate for that kind of stuff and make sure that you're keeping a close eye on it so that you can perform at the level that you would like to? I think it's huge. And like you said, even if you're not a professional runner, running clearly is something that you care deeply about and you're putting all this time and effort into it. Why not like figure out every piece of the puzzle and if all other things are okay, but you're still feeling sluggish or run down or your muscles are not recovered, 
to me, there's probably something going on. And um, I actually use this athlete blood test where uh, you literally can just look at them online and they have different profiles where you could figure out, okay, I just need a simple CBC or someone is a little more concerned about their thyroid or, you know, different other hormonal issues that they might be having. And you, you can just take that to like your local lab. I mean, that stuff's huge. And I know a lot of people sometimes don't want to pay for that, but I think if you're going to put all this energy into your own running, like it's absolutely worth it. It, you know, it's two pairs of shoes. If you look at it that way, if you wanted to get a big um, profile on your blood, but I absolutely think it's worth it. Yeah. I think that's a good way to frame it. So let's look back at your 2018. You're in three marathons last year, culminated in CIM, which was a PR. You're in New York just a month before that and London earlier in the year. How sweet was it for you to end the year finishing second at the U.S. Champs with a personal best that at that point was seven years old? It was great. Um, it was great because of so many reasons. You know, I took a gamble by trying to run a third marathon and won only four weeks after New York. But I just felt like I was so late in my career and my body had been healthy for a long time. So I, I didn't feel like we were risking injury. Um, I know there's risk of being fatigued longer after, but something inside of me just said, just roll the dice and just <laughs> see if it's possible because I had so many kind of like asterisks by all my marathons, in my opinion, in the last like two and a half years. And I'm like, none of these are indicative of what I can run. Like, I don't even think CIM was indicative, but I'll take it because the PR is, as my agent Josh says, the best you've ever been. So I couldn't really be upset, but I still don't even think I've run close to what I'm capable of in the marathon. And each one I run just gives me a little more confidence. And I, I just feel like I need the day for it to all come together and and finally show like what I'm capable of. What do you think you're capable of? <laughs> I mean, truthfully, from like a lot of my workouts and the training I've done and all my other races, I think I can run 226 or better. And I know that's a huge jump. Um, but I think I'm not saying that because oh, I've run this race and I could have run that, but the training that I've done over the last three years, like it's pointing to that pace and that comfortability. And I just think, yeah, I can't say it, but I need to go out and do it. Do you think the marathon is your best distance? I used to think that. And then honestly, after New York last year, when I finished 11th, I was, I was so distraught and I'm like, this is an awful feeling. Like here I am thinking I want to make the Olympic team in the marathon and at New York, I'm fifth American on the day. So even if that was the Olympic trials without five to six other women who will arguably be in the mix, I wasn't even top three American at New York marathon. And so part of me thought I was like being an imposter thinking I could make the Olympic team. Um, you know, but then I stopped throwing a pity party for myself. And I just said, you know what, Stephanie, you're on a little different trajectory. You do have two children. It's gonna, it's taken you a little longer to get back. And I, I just said, make 2019 a year about, um, trying to make teams, trying to win races and get myself into a position where on the right day, I, I do have a shot and I am in the conversation for being a contender to make the marathon team. So, so yes, I do feel like, the marathon is my best event, but I'm also trying to make myself a 10,000 meter runner. What do you think your biggest limiters have been in the marathon up to this point? 
Honestly, I would probably say a lot have to do with my stomach issues. And I think it's because I'm either not absorbing the fueling that well or something is happening along the way because before I had kids and I ran like my marathon best, I always felt like really great late in the race um, and I didn't have any problems with fueling. But I've noticed now since all of my like gut issues have happened, I either... I'm not getting enough fluid down or when I am getting fluid, like I throw up after each race um, and I'm throwing up like Gatorade, what I've just been drinking. So something feels like my fueling is just not like hitting it right because I'm not having that full of energy feeling late in the race. Um, although CIM, I did feel great late in the race, but I think I was just limited to running faster simply because I had run a marathon four weeks before that. And looking ahead to the 2020 trials, which you just mentioned, what will it take to make that team, not just for you, but for anyone who's going to be on that podium that day in Atlanta? I mean, it's hard to know with the course, so I don't like to say time. I think you're going to have to be a woman who's in 224 shape to, to make that team. And I don't know what that's going to mean on the day in Atlanta, but I think you have to have the skills and be in the wheelhouse of being able to run, you know, 223, 224 on a flat course and see how that translates to Atlanta. Talk to me a little bit about what's been going on with women's distance running in this country in general over the past several years. As you said earlier, we're seeing women running faster and faster, coming right out of school um, and early on in their careers. And then other women, such as yourself, who have been at this for a while, still competing at a high level and still setting personal bests. What do you attribute that collective rise to? Well, I think it's two things. I think what you said about women transitioning to the marathon earlier in their career, I think that has something to do with it. Whereas, you know, maybe before 10 years ago, you had a lot of women run most of their career on the track and then maybe start marathoning into their 30s. But um, what I'm seeing now is a lot of women are just trying it earlier and maybe they're finding that that's their niche, which is kind of cool. And then the other part of it is just, you know, having women training together in training groups across the U.S. And then as soon as one American woman does something, it almost opens the doors and opens um, the possibility for other women to do it. When you have Shalane winning New York and then Des winning Boston, Amy, you know, being top three at Tokyo Marathon it's like every U.S. woman just wants to be part of where we're taking U.S. marathoning. And so we sort of raise the standards for one another. Um, and then it's making it so it's incredibly deep now in the U.S. I mean, I think at the end of last year, I was ranked maybe ninth in the marathon, you know, with the 229.20, which is just crazy when you think about where we've come over the last decade. Um, but it's also exciting to see that, that where we're going, and I love being part of it right now. Yeah, I mean, a decade ago, 229 and change would have had you certainly in the top five here in the U.S., if not the top three. And now it's like, almost kind of like a dime a dozen, like 229 marathon is still a really solid time, but to really be in contention, you've got to be like mid 220s now, if not faster, which I think speaks to the depth of what's happening here right now. Absolutely. I mean, even though I was ecstatic to run a PR at CIM, 
like truthfully, I'm like, Stephanie, 229 really isn't anything <laughs> that special right now, you know, when you compare it to the world stage. So I think what's cool about that is it just gets rid of this complacency. And there's always like, we're just reaching for more. And the new standard is, okay, running under 226 now becomes competitive in the US. And then trying to get closer to 223, 222 is where you're making kind of a splash on the world stage. Who are the American women who have inspired you throughout your professional career or even before your professional career when you were competing collegiately and even in high school? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I don't know how much I've thought about that, but I, obviously the first one I would have to say, cause she's one of my best friends is Lauren Fleshman. Um, you know, we started picky bars together and I met her in, a village apartment complex when we were both cycling because we were hurt in 2008. And here I was someone who had run like 3320 in the 10k. And I'm talking about hopefully making an Olympic team one day, which clearly I was very far away from that. And you have Lauren who just ran 1458 in the 5k and she legit was about to make the Olympic team. Um, but she ended up breaking her foot about three weeks before the 2008 trials. So that was pretty heartbreaking for her. But, um, yeah, Lauren is someone that has just kind of showed me, I guess, one side of how to be a professional runner and at the highest level. But then also when we finish our careers, it's kind of like, are you going to wake up at 35 and say, well, what's next? And she was someone who showed me that you could have a balance of running as a professional, but also being an entrepreneur, being a mom. Um, and I definitely think that that's something I've adapted in my lifestyle over the last couple of years. And then of course, um, you know, Des Davia, Des Linda now, she's someone I competed with in college and against. And to see where she's come without any injuries, any interruptions over the last 10 years, I mean, she is the real deal. And there's no, like, there's no secrets to what she's done. She's just put in consistent, long, hard training, you know, for the last seven to eight years. And it's, it's shown with her winning Boston last year. And I think she's been top five in almost every major that she's ever run. And then sometimes she's still like, oh, wow, that surprises us about debts. And I'm like, why would that surprise you? Like she is always there and she's always in contention. Um, so she's someone. And then, of course, on my team, Kellen Taylor, to see what Kellen's done and being in the wakes of her footsteps and a lot of training and to see her breakthrough running 224 last year, it gave me a lot of confidence that um, if I keep putting in the work and, and going on my own timeline, you know, that those big breakthroughs are kind of in my future. To pull one aspect out of what you just said in regards to Lauren Fleshman, you talked about she has shown you sort of how you can stay involved beyond your professional career. And you guys do have picky bars together. You are in your mid-30s. I hope you still compete for a few more years, selfishly, because I love watching you race. But what does post-competitive running hold for Stephanie Bruce? Well, I don't exactly know. And I think that's a good thing because it means I'm so focused and I'm so um, into what I'm doing at the present moment that I don't like to look 
into the future, you know, especially with competing. I know the Olympic trials are coming up in a year, but I don't like to go through my daily routine and daily training and think, okay, February 29th of 2020, what do I have to do? I have to say, all right, what do I have to do on this 10 mile easy run on this eight times a mile workout? And so I really try to take it one day at a time. And that also helps being a mom because I don't want to project into the future when my kids are older because I love the phase that they're in now. But I do like to think that what I've tried to do over the last couple of years is kind of sprinkle little, I don't know, bird seeds and, and put my hand in, into different pots to, so to speak, make a plan for the future that when I am done running competitively, I will have established, you know, Ben and I have a coaching business. We've done um, Bruce camps in Flagstaff for runners of all abilities. And I started this um, kind of campaign with my grit t-shirts and just in the YouTube channel. So there's all different things that I'm, I'm basically just trying to, as a pro runner, I don't think it's just about my times and my places. I want to bring entertainment and motivation and inspiration to the sport. And I, I'm trying to leave it better than when I started. Um, and hopefully I'm doing that in all the different avenues that I'm trying to juggle right now. Let's dig into all of that. I want to start with the coaching and the camps. You I know are working with some higher level runners as part of your coaching business, but a lot of just age group runners who are chasing personal best, trying to qualify for Boston, whatever it may be. And those are the same folks that are coming to a lot of your camps. What have you learned from working with that type of athlete, the non-elite, the non-pro who just like you is a, might be a parent, um, has busy days and is trying to fit their training in around the rest of their lives? Well, I learned that they care just as much as I do <laughs> about my running. And I think sometimes that gets missed. You know, running happens to me at my job and I have the luxury of being paid for it. But it doesn't mean that um, Katie Smith out there who's trying to run 310 at Boston isn't as passionate and love it as much as I do. And so I really try to remember that when I'm coaching them and I try to navigate their lifestyle, their job demands, parenting demands with how much training I'm giving them, but with the intent that in ways like they're tougher than I am in, in some aspects. Like I said, they're getting up at four in the morning before work. They're getting their miles in on their treadmill or they're running in the dark before they go to a eight hour full-time job. Um, so that sometimes is like is really impressive to see like what people do to just chase their dreams and chase their goals. And I think knowing that they are just invested in their own running, that's what helps one when I'm coaching them and two as a pro athlete, that's a big reason why I share a lot of my journey because I feel like those runners and fans are just starving for information and starving for content, whether that's giving them different workouts that I'm doing, showing them my strength routine, um, showing them when I'm nervous or scared before a race so they know they don't feel alone. So it's just trying to like bridge that gap between the things that make me tick as a pro runner and the things that make you know them tick as, a, as your everyday mass runner. And that idea of sharing the journey, it's very central to your team, Nazalit. I believe it's in your mission statement, maybe the unofficial one, but I've seen it out there where it's like that's a big part of what you guys are trying to do is share every part of the journey. And as you just described, you've taken that a step further through sharing a lot of your experiences through social media, now your YouTube channel. Are you surprised by how many people have opted in to join you on the journey? 
Um, I don't think surprising is the right word, but I think, um, I guess flattering is the right word because at the end of the day, I don't think I'm anything different or special than anyone else. I think I'm a super nerdy runner. Um, I'm a mom, um, but I also just am so passionate about all the things that I'm doing. And I guess one thing is I, I don't know how, how to say this the right way, but I don't give a shit about um, maybe other people that see what I'm doing as a negative or, you know, they think either sharing their journey is bragging or I don't need to do that. I don't think so. I think that's part of my job description. And like you said, our mission statement for the team is train hard, race fearlessly and share every part of the journey. And I always liken it to when you go see a movie, you don't walk into the end of a movie and watch the last two minutes and think, wow, that was a great film. Like you need to watch the plot develop. And I look at my career as I'm trying to develop the plot for all the fans. So when they see that amazing result or they see that not so good result, they know why, because they were along for the ride and the whole time. Um, and I think it's just, it's really reinforcing when I have people that reach out to tell me that in a way, like something I've said or done has changed their life or it's given them hope like that, that really is very flattering. And it also, it, it just affirms like people out there do need messaging and they do need help. And if you have any inclination to share part of yours, know that you're probably not alone in what you're thinking. And there are other people out there who would love to hear from you. From the outside looking in, it seems to me that sharing the journey comes pretty easily or naturally to you. Why do you think so many pro runners struggle to share their own journeys and the things that they're experiencing? We often see runners will post whenever they have a good race, oh, thanks to my sponsors, this, that, and the other. And then if they're hurt, they go dark for many, many months and you don't hear a thing from them. And as such, they become unrelatable. Why do you think many runners struggle with that? Well, I think the first thing when you said that it comes naturally, that's not necessarily true. It's that I've been doing it for eight years, eight to 10 years. And sometimes when people are watching something, they think, oh, like they just know how to do it or they have a voice. Not necessarily. I just am consistent about it and I've tried different things. Some things have failed. Some things have um, taken off and had success, but I think you have to get over the fear of that. When you put something out there, you might hear crickets and it might fall on deaf ears or people might not agree with your messaging, but the more you do it over time and the consistency you do it with, you will become more natural and it'll become essentially fun. Like it's fun for me. It doesn't feel like a chore or a task to share part of my journey and to blog and do my YouTube channel. But I think twofold. Sometimes athletes are afraid that either if they don't have a good result, people are going to either lose respect for them or not like them. But for me, what I found is it doesn't matter what my result is because the fans are there for the good and the bad times. Um, and if you need any tips, like just start tomorrow, you can change who you are, or what you want to do, as long as you start putting things out there and then eventually it will catch on. And I say that because like I said, I've been doing it for many, many years. One of the things that I'll say write about because it seems to me, I mean, now you have the YouTube channel, but you write a lot on, on Instagram and, and on your blog. Um, but a common topic is body image and you're not the only person who's writing about body image, but we're starting to see more and more of that kind of in running amongst pro and elite runners who are starting to share their thoughts, their struggles, whatever it may be. 
and others as well. Why do you think that is such a hot topic right now in the running community? I don't know why it is now or yes, like a hot topic twofold. I think a few months ago, I felt like there was this, like, there's a fine line of, of talking about it and sharing your story. And then there's a obsession about it. Like everything doesn't have to be about body image because if we do that and we talk about, uh, what our different bodies, body types are, I think we're taken away from our achievements and from what we're actually doing in the running world. And so I think there's a fine line of being able to share whether you had, you know, a bad experience with body image and you're trying to recover from that. And maybe that helps inspire people. But I also think there's something to, um, encouraging, you know, positive body image. And as a pro, a lot of people are looking up to you and they're thinking, what are you eating? What are you doing? Um, and for me, like I've always been passionate about being someone that is on the thin side of distance running, but I've always gotten my period regularly and I've never been on birth control. And so a lot of women used to say I was lucky to get my period, but I get offended by that because it's not luck. It's I've worked really hard over the last decade to maintain, you know, a healthy body fat, healthy body weight, but it's by eating the right amount of calories that I'm expending with my training. And so I'm just trying to show that we can all have different body types and whatever works for yours should be what you focus on and not trying to attain, you know, what someone else might look like. Marathoners come in all shapes and sizes from 90 pounds to 130 pounds, you know, on on the elite side. But I think focusing too much on that, that can also be a dangerous thing. I appreciate you sharing that. We're going to wrap up here. In a minute, last topic I want to touch on with you revolves around something that you mentioned a little while ago, and that's grit. And grit has been a major theme for you since last fall, I believe. I think that's when I first saw it come up through your channels. You did a blog post about it. What does grit mean to you, and why did you decide to focus on that word, that theme, last fall? So when I was getting ready to run New York Marathon last fall, I kind of just had this like moment of looking back on my career, seeing how far I had come after having children. And then I was looking ahead to 2020 and beyond and thinking, okay, what are the things I want to achieve in the next couple of years, you know, before my career comes to an end? And I started to wonder, people always ask like, where do I get my motivation from? And I, I didn't know how to answer that because I think I'm a very just intrinsically self-motivated person. And so before I started training, I was like, I feel like I need something. I need like a word or a mantra to define what it is that keeps me getting out the door with two kids, with balancing everything, running 110, 120 mile weeks. Um, and grit, I just loved everything that word was about. You know, it was resolve of character. It was resisting complacency. And I had read Angela Duckworth, Duckworth's book, Grit. And she talks so much in there about how uh, when she was a young girl, her dad had really high expectations of her. And he always thought her grades had to be at this standard in order for her to be successful. And she told her dad, she's like, you know, dad, I'm not going to have a job. I'm going to have a calling. And I may not be the smartest person in the room, but I'm going to be the grittiest. And so then grit just became this like 
I don't know, this reason that I took it into training for a new New York marathon. But then I also looked at the things that were going on in my life. You know, I was trying to help my mom who was going through, um, stage three breast cancer. And then my brother was, he almost died in a drug overdose and he was in a rehab facility. And so I had all these personal things going on and I kind of just needed something to hold on to and to wake up every day with reason and motivation to get out the door. And I found that the more I shared that, the more other people were realizing, hey, they had hard things that they were doing in their lives and trying to get through. And that grit just resonated with them. And so originally we launched the t-shirts and for the first half of the sales we donated a portion of that to Memorial Sloan Kettering which is the cancer uh, treatment center in New York where my mom and dad were both treated and actually Gabe Grunewald is um, she has all her cancer treatments there so it was just kind of a special place in my heart and then yeah I just kept selling the shirts and it's really cool that people share their stories with me on Instagram or they send me a message of them wearing the shirt and you know for some people it's as simple as 15 miles on the treadmill at 5 a.m. like that's grit or someone getting through a divorce. That's grit. And so it, it was just really cool that this one word and messaging could resonate with so many different people. I love it. How can people or how would you encourage people to cultivate grit in their own lives? <sighs> Put me on the spot. Um, I, I just think that, um, yeah, sometimes grit gets the connotation of like, uh, you have to push through push through things when it's going poorly. And so I don't like that, like grit your teeth and just push through an injury or something like that. That's not the purpose, but it's that things are going to be uncomfortable in life and you're going to have uncomfortable runs, uncomfortable races, uncomfortable conversations with family and friends and, you know, standing up to your boss if you feel like you deserve a raise. All things like that, I think it's just giving you a little more courage and a little more... I guess, um, pep in your step to really stand up for what you believe in and to push through those hard days and know that you're going to see light at the end of the tunnel. I think that's a great place to wrap up the show. Steph, always fun talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me, Mario. All right, we got it done. Hope you enjoyed this most recent episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. I'd love your feedback. You can send it to me on Twitter. I'm at Mario Fraioli, or you can just go to your podcast app that you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review. Helps new listeners discover the show. Only takes a minute, and it is the easiest way to show your support. Thank you to Rise Run Retreat for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Rise Run Retreat is a four-day women's running retreat that takes place from May 16th to the 19th in Vermont. It was founded on the idea that when women come together through running, they inspire and strengthen one another. You'll explore country lanes, run through gentle wooded trails, listen to inspiring guest speakers, and participate in numerous workshops. The retreat is limited to just 16 women, and small-scale setting makes for a unique and impactful experience. Your registration includes all of your lodging, wholesome meals provided by the local farmer's market, and an amazing swag bag. The deadline to sign up is April 7th, and it will fill up fast, so head to riserunretreat.com for more information and use the code TMSPOD, that's all caps, all one word, and save $100 off of your registration fee. Uh, Let's see, what else? If you're digging this podcast, sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that I also think you'll enjoy. 
Finally, a big thank you to John Summerford of BearsRecords.com for handling all the audio production for the show. He's a big part of my small team and helps make the morning shakeout sound as good as it does week in and week out. He also created all the music himself, which is pretty rad. I think that's it. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you.